The Gospel lesson is taken from Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the Gospel of the Lord. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to, them, to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to God. Please be seated. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commands Israel to perform a public ritual once they cross over the Jordan into the land. Specifically, Moses says, they are to build an altar at Mount Ebal and that they're to offer sacrifices on that altar. And Moses continues and says they are to take stones covered with plaster and write out the whole law on those stones. And then, in an orderly fashion, Involving Mount Ebal and another mountain, nearby Mount Gerizim, there to stand while the whole law is read. It's that mosaic instruction, those commands which are meticulously obeyed here in our text in Joshua chapter 8. It appears, perhaps, at first, to be an odd ritual. Uh, but it's anything but odd, and it's in many ways central, and it has enduring relevance for the church, because what this was in our text this morning was a service of covenant renewal, which is what this worship service is. It is God having faithfully fulfilled his promise to bring Israel into the land, renewing that promise to them while Israel at the same time pledges allegiance to the covenant. It's a service 
of covenant renewal. We are in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, but we are continually in need of renewal in that covenant. And that is what the public worship of God on Sunday is most accurately described as. You might ask, well, what is it we do here? And some would say, well, we come to praise God, or we come to worship God, or we come to hear God's word, or we come for fellowship. But we need some sort of a term that explains all of those things and the fact that God himself serves us here, meets us here. And I think the best term for that is covenant renewal. What is it that the church does on Sunday? It renews its covenant with Jesus Christ. Now, Israel is doing that here. They had already, a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 5 of Joshua, they had renewed the signs, the covenant signs of circumcision and Passover. And here they do something more fundamental. In obedience to Moses' direction, they renew the covenant as a whole. So we'll make two points here, two points, altar and sacrifice and the law. Altar and sacrifice and the law. Those are the two points. So we're in Joshua chapter 8. In verse 30 tells us that Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. It's about 40 miles, it's near Shechem, it's north of Jerusalem. This is the place the same place where Abraham first received the promise of the land once he had entered the Canaan. And this is the place he first built an altar to the Lord in Canaan. And later, Jacob also built an altar here. And these altars built by the fathers centuries before the patriarchs, while they were yet strangers in the land, were a kind of symbolic claim they were like advance notice, if you will, that this is Yahweh's land and it will be given to Yahweh's people and he will be worshipped here. In many ways, church structures function that way in the earth. There are sort of advance notice to the world that there will be a, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and he shall be worshipped by every tribe and tongue and nation and language. So the patriarchs built altars in this basic location. And now, centuries later, the Abrahamic promise is fulfilled. Joshua builds an altar. And this is another way of planting, this time for good, Yahweh's name, the God of Israel's name, and his worship in this land. When you build an altar in Canaan under these circumstances, it's a sign that all other altars are to be torn down. Remember, we covered this a few weeks ago. There's no First Amendment inside of Canaan once Joshua enters. When he, Joshua builds an altar, all other altars have to be torn down. And this is a monument. It's like the other stone monuments in Joshua. It's like the heap of stones over the body of Achan. It's a monument to the Lord God of Israel's kingship, his ownership of the land. 
And then the text then cites the command from Deuteronomy. It's to be an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded a tool. It's not clear. Scholars don't know why the altar can't have cut stones. It appears to have something to do with human labor, perhaps profaning the altar. Pagan altars apparently use cut stones, so God doesn't want cut stones for his altars. That's all we know. And Joshua obeys that command. And then he's built this altar. And then he offers, the text says, peace, burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now the burnt offering was in many ways the basic, the root sacrifice of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. It was sort of the foundational sacrifice. The whole animal is offered up in smoke. The whole animal is consumed. It was an atoning sacrifice for sin. And this establishes for us right up front that the covenant is a gift of divine grace. The covenant is sealed in the blood that is shed on the altar. The covenant is a bond in blood between God and His people. Sovereignly administered. No blood atonement, no covenant. The covenant between God and His people is not like a contract. It's not like a mutual agreement between parties with attorneys and the like. It's a sovereignly administered bond sealed in blood. No blood atonement, no covenant. And once the blood is shed, there follow peace offerings. And these are offerings of thanksgiving for the restored fellowship we have with God through the burnt offering. The peace offerings prescribe that some of the animal be held back for a celebratory meal in the presence of the Lord after the offering. And so atonement leads to peace and fellowship. Righteousness through bloodshed leads to peace. Grace leads to gratitude. This is the bedrock of the covenant. And it's established here on the altar of sacrifice. We'll come back to some of this later, but the second point we want to look at is the law. So, in verse 32, Joshua writes on stone tablets a copy of the Law of Moses. He had his own personal copy, we know from earlier in the book, that he was told, cling to this law so that you can have success in the land. Read it, meditate on it. Here, that copy is written out and becomes public. So, beloved, this is a very long, long service. <laughs> uh, you have to watch. Imagine if you had to watch the sermon being written out and prepared before it was preached. Right, that's what Israel has to do. Joshua's going to get the stones, and he's going to put plaster on the stones. and then he's gonna, These are no, enormous stones. They would have to be. And then he's going to write the whole law on them. While thousands and thousands of people just watch. So, after the whole law is written on the stones, verse 33 starts with all Israel. And notice the extent of all Israel. It includes sojourners 
who were like resident aliens, converts like Rahab. Not only sojourners, but native-born Israelites, the text says, elders, officers, judges, women, and children. Every last person is assembled. Because the covenant addresses us all. There is no one here left outside the scope or the address of the word of God. In their various stations, callings, duties, perplexities of life, the covenant addresses all of us. And so Israel's all there. The whole law, the whole people. And they stand on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who are carrying the ark of the Lord, the text tells us. So half the people, six of the tribes, according to Moses' prior command, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim. And the other half, the other six tribes, stood in front of Mount Ebal. So it's easy to get lost here. So the scene looks something like this. Shechem, the town where this happens, is in something of a valley. Mount Ebal stands on the north side of the valley. And there, in front of that mountain, are six tribes of Israel standing. Mount Gerizim stands on the south side of the valley. Six tribes are standing in front of that mountain. Down in the valley in the middle, between the two mountains, is the ark with the Levitical priests. And in this middle area, Joshua starts to read the law, which he has inscribed on stones to the people. The whole law. And this configuration... It's not arbitrary. It was what Moses commanded. So it's highly significant. You can see the end of verse 33 says this arrangement was commanded to bless Israel. The covenant expressed in God's covenant law is a blessing. It's a gift of grace. God has blessed, and he is blessing, and he desires to bless his people. That's why he makes a covenant with them. He doesn't just relate to us willy-nilly. A covenant is basically another shorthand way of remembering a covenant is to think of it as an ordered relationship. It's a structured relationship, sealed in blood, that God has with us. This is why he made a covenant with Abraham. This is why he renewed that covenant with Moses and gave the law on Mount Sinai. And it's why he's given Israel this land. To bless them. To place his benediction on us. And through them to eventually bless the Gentiles and all the ends of the earth. And so in this public arrangement in verse uh, 34, Joshua reads, the text says, all the words of the law. Every last word. You think we have some long readings on some Sundays. Joshua read the whole law while the people stood. There was not a word, the text says, of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So what does all of this mean? Hopefully we've got the picture now. What's happening here? Especially in this reading. First, note, note this. The reading of the law, the reading of God's word, depends 
It cannot happen. It depends on the prior sacrifices made on the altar. It's because atonement has been made and fellowship has been restored that we can hear God's word. We can hear the law. Now, this is of monumental significance for Christian worship. This is why we apply the atoning blood of Jesus to ourselves every week through the confession of sins and the assurance of pardon, and then and only then do we move on to the ministry of the Word. We can't do stuff in any order we would like when we gather. There's a prescribed order that we see in Scripture. Atoning reconciliation, bloodshed, cleansing, then instruction. Cleansing, then consecration. This shapes the way Christian worship is to be formed. Often I'm asked sometimes to to look at a church's worship service. This has happened to me at least a half a dozen times where I'm on the phone with someone and they say, can you check this out? I say, oh, sure, let's go to their website. I go to the website, I look, and the first thing I say is, there's no confession of sins in the front of the service. That's sad. <laughs> what it does is it allows this text here, and many, many texts like it, uh, it allows this sort of bottom to drop out in the way one is thinking about approaching God. There's no hearing God's word without blood atonement. Now, we don't offer another sacrifice, of course, because Jesus has been offered once for all. But we fly to that sacrifice. We confess our sins. We are cleansed by Christ. We hear his assuring word of pardon. And then, renewed, we can listen to his law. Just like in the book of Exodus, it's the bloodshed of the Passover lamb which leads to the giving of the law in Sinai. So it is here. So there's an order here that's basic to what we do. And this is why we call our worship service a service of renewal of the covenant. The second thing this scene shows us is that God gave the whole law for the whole people. Every word for every person. So that the whole Bible is for every child of God. It's not for some elite group of scholars. It's for everyone. The Bible is a common book. It's accessible to everyone. St. Augustine, the great 4th century church father, was a professor. A classic scholar. He was a professor of rhetoric. And so he worked with language. and, And the best speakers and writers in the ancient world... And he was, as many of you know, wondrously converted to Christianity, but he struggled for a long time with the plain simplicity of the Bible. He thought the ancient pagan classical authors were much better writers. But he came to see that there was a power and a beauty and a simplicity and a majesty of its own in Holy Scripture. But it's an accessible majesty. The whole book's for everyone. Read the Bible. That would be an application of this text. The whole Bible. Third, the terms of the covenant set out under the law, these are the terms by which Israel is to keep and possess the land. Adam had terms by which he could remain in the garden if he obeyed. 
and would be exiled if he broke covenant with God. And so here you have Israel, the nation, and they're like a new Adam in a new holy land. They have to obey this law to possess the land if they abandon this covenant. That's what this reading is. One of the things the reading is doing is saying, if you abandon this covenant, and they eventually did, you'll be exiled from this land. There's no staying in this land without this law. And there's no access or hearing of this law without atoning sacrifice. And so what Israel is doing here in this service is they are publicly before God and men, before heaven and earth, pledging obedience to the covenant. Which is what you are doing, whether you're conscious of it or not. Every Sunday when that word is read. They're saying, if we obey, we will receive the blessings of the covenant. But they're also saying this. If we disobey, let the curses of the covenant fall on our heads. And so by hearing the law in this manner, Israel's taking an oath. And they're calling God as the witness to that oath. That's why there's two mountains here. It's the significance in the, in the middle of verse 34 to reading of both the blessing and the curse of the covenant. You see that there in verse 34? The curses and the blessings of the covenant are read. The curses are set out in very grim, lengthy detail in Deuteronomy 27. They include exile and destruction and subjugation by foreign powers, which in fact came to be the case. The blessings of obedience, they're set forth in Deuteronomy 28. Long life, fruitful crops, peace and prosperity in the land. This is why there are two mountains in the scene with two, the people divided between them. And so what would have happened, and we know this from Deuteronomy, uh, Mount Ebal represents the reading of the curses and Mount Gerizim represents the reading of the blessings. So it would go something like this. As the curses from the law were read, those on Mount Ebal would say, Amen, let it be so. Let the curses of the law fall on the nation if we break the covenant. And as the blessings of the law are read, the other six tribes on Mount Gerizim, they would say, Amen, let the blessings of the covenant be on our head if we keep the law. That is involved in any reading of Scripture. We don't often surface it, but that's what we're doing when we hear the Word of God. And this means, as recipients of grace, we are recipients of grace. Blood atonement has procured your forgiveness. Nevertheless, God calls us to obedience. Not perfect obedience, of course, but some reasonable level of obedience is required to maintain the covenant. And when Israel fell below that standard, they were exiled from the land. Even the New Testament, after the sacrifice of Christ, warns Christians that if they persist in disobedience, if they trample the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, we too can be cut off from the people of God. And so as the word is read, we are to believe and we are to rest upon and we are to embrace the promises therein. But we are also to tremble at and heed the warnings and the threats. 
In this manner, Israel's renewing covenant with God. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And as I said, we know what happened. Israel was tragically exiled from this land. They broke this covenant that they made with all, in all solemnity today in this text with Joshua. And the curses promised in this covenant fell on God's own chosen people. And they fell with this ferocious intensity. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire sweeps the ten northern tribes away. Gone. Never to come back, really. A few of them straggle back later. Then in 587 BC, the southern part of Israel is decimated. The city's destroyed in the Babylonian invasion. The tenure in the land is lost. Israel, God's son, evicted from the Holy Land. The whole covenant arrangement seems to be a failure. I mean, eventually they come back from exile. But they never attain to the glory and dominion that they had under David and Solomon. And then down through these centuries, they're subjugated by various foreign powers, reduced to a little struggling outpost under the uh, Roman Empire. And it's into that situation that our Lord Jesus, the new Adam, the new Israel, appears. And he establishes a new an everlasting covenant based on better promises and a better sacrifice. And he obeys every last word of the law. Jesus' obedience prior to the cross is decisive for your salvation. Yes, what he did on the cross is also decisive, but we often miss the fact that he had to render obedience. Obedience that Adam and Israel and we have failed to render. The law must be kept in its fullness. Jesus keeps it. And then, then, he becomes our burnt offering and our peace offering. His cross becomes our altar. The fulfillment of the altar here built by Joshua. Notice something else we haven't mentioned yet. In verse, you can see it in verse 30. The altar in the text was built on Mount Ebal. And Mount Ebal, where these sacrifices were offered at the front end of this text, the burnt to peace offering, Mount Ebal is the Mount of Cursing. And this means that on his cross, on the altar of his atoning sacrifice, Jesus bears the curses we deserve. Atoning sacrifice takes place on the mount of cursing. It's as if Jesus says, I will obey the law that my people have broken and I will bear the curses of the covenant on their behalf. And so the whole glory of the gospel not to mention the structure of Christian worship, is in this text as it comes forth, as it comes to pass in Jesus Christ. In this way, Jesus secures a people, a new Israel, for himself. We live in a covenant that far surpasses in grace and glory the covenant Israel lived under. And a better covenant means we have a better hope. 
And what's our better hope? Our better hope is not the possession of Palestine, but the possession of a new holy land, a new Canaan, a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Israel was exiled from this land, but you have an everlasting inheritance. You are to be among the meek who inherit the earth. Jesus Christ is our altar then. And that table is our fellowship meal of thanksgiving. And the scriptures read and proclaimed are the covenant word. The word which has already been fulfilled. The word whose curses have already been born on your behalf. That we might live in joyful and grateful obedience. That we might possess the coming holy land. So, this text is a gospel text. Rejoice. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. The covenant that God has made with Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in him, we weekly renew that covenant here until we shall forever possess the land. Amen.